0: Please be advised that the following science comedy podcast has not been subjected to peer review and should not be quoted professionally. Side effects from exposure to the non-peer-reviewed podcast may include spontaneous laughter at guest comments or unprovoked dinner table conversations. You have been warned. Hello and- Welcome to the non-peer-reviewed podcast. It's our name and our disclaimer. I'm your host Benjamin Keenan. Joining me today on this very space field episode is molecular infectious disease diagnosis researcher and science
1: popularizer Ross Bulch. Hello, yes, exactly what you want for your space episode is the uh, the (laughs) biologist. Although I suspect, not to foreshadow too much, it may actually become relevant. So that's nice. Spoilers. Yes. Well, also,
0: you were very keen to be on this episode. I was. I was. (laughs) Joining us is science communicator, presenter, and science writer. It's Dr. Joanna Howes.
2: Hello. Welcome to the show. You have a chemist and a biologist. This is going to go great.
0: Ah, but there's reasons for these things.
2: Exactly.
0: <laughs> so I think those of you in the science sphere will know what we're about to talk about. Astronomers <laughs> may have found a signature of life on Venus.
2: What? This story is completely just, I did not expect us to talk about this one at all.
0: There yeah. are so many, well, so many angles to this story, but let me get to the, <laughs> the content yeah. first. Yeah. But everyone up to speed. So... Evidence indicates that phosphine, a gas associated with living organisms, is present in the habitable regions of Venus's atmosphere. The search for life beyond Earth has largely revolved around our rocky red neighbour, Mars. NASA has launched multiple rovers over the years, with a new one currently en route to sift through the Martian soil, searching for signs of water and other hints of habitability. But now, in a surprise twist, scientists at MIT, Cardiff University, and elsewhere have observed what may be signs of life in the clouds of our other, even closer planetary neighbor, Venus. While they have not found direct evidence of living organisms there, if their observation is indeed associated with life, it must be some sort of aerial life form in Venus's clouds the only habitable portion of what is otherwise a scorched and inhospitable planet. Their discovery and analysis was published in the journal Nature Astronomy. The astronomers, led by Jane Greaves of Cardiff University, detected in Venus's atmosphere a spectral fingerprint or light-based signature of phosphine. MIT scientists have previously shown that if this stinky poisonous gas were ever detected on a rocky terrestrial planet, it could only be produced by living organisms. The researchers made the detection using the James Clerk Maxwell telescope in Hawaii and the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile. The MIT team followed up the new observation with an exhaustive analysis to see whether anything other than life could have produced phosphine in Venus's harsh, sulfuric environment. Based on the many scenarios they considered, the team concludes that there is no explanation for the phosphine detected in Venus's clouds other than the presence of life. It's very hard to prove a negative, says Clara Sousa-Silva, research scientist at MIT's Department of Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences. Now astronomers will think of all the ways to justify phosphine without life. And I welcome that. Please do, because we are at the end of our possibilities to show abiotic processes that can make phosphine. That means either there is life or it's some sort of physical or chemical process that we do not expect to happen on rocky planets, added co-author and research scientist Janos Pachowski. So this this news broke earlier in the week, last week, actually, as we were recording. And I have some opinions based on the fact that this was an embargoed story that got leaked. <laughs> yeah.
2: Mm. It was really not very well embargoed, was it?
0: Well, it's, it's big news. Potential life on Venus is yeah. Um, the cleanup, like the, the mopping up after the stories got leaked was pretty good. Uh, so the day beforehand, most of those stories that got leaked were down. But, of course, it's the internet, so those stories exist still for those Mm -hmm. who know where to find them. Nothing ever disappears off of the internet, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think what's more interesting, perhaps, than... I mean, obviously, the the possibility of life on Venus is awesome and very, very cool. And as someone who has supported further exploration of Venus for a number of years, I'm very excited about this because I want a cloud city. (laughs) I think that i'm going to pass this over to ross who very much want to talk want to talk about um some media hype and overhype maybe
1: yeah so obviously we'll get into the actual science of it all because that is actually the coolest part of this story i think yeah um just as a lens to view how hypotheses are generated in science this is like the perfect story but also it's a perfect story to look at how the media report things because you know, that so many stories really led very heavily on life on Venus, question mark, or some of them, less ambiguous than that, were basically stating we'd found life on Venus. Yeah. Uh, and that's obviously very far from what we did. Um, You know, I I, I remember when I first saw this story on Twitter, you know, my, my response was, mm-hmm. I will believe it when I see it for myself. You know, when, when we have the microbes under a microscope somewhere yeah spoilers it's probably microbes if there's life at all um then i'll yeah i'll believe it but you know for now it it what it provides us is as ben alluded to is a reason to go to venus and have a really good look finally we've we've neglected venus as a planet you know venus is
2: (laughs) to be fair i believe yeah but it's not exactly welcoming oh yeah no not at all (laughs) not so much
0: Acid rain, hot enough to melt lead on the surface. Like
2: 460 degrees or something.
0: On the surface, yeah.
2: 92% higher pressure than um, Earth's atmosphere.
0: Uh, I think it's yeah. like 900 yeah. metres of underwater
1: pressure at mm-hmm. the surface level. Yes, which is a lot, to be fair. Yeah, But, yeah. yeah, I think that the way the media sort of...
2: 92 times greater, sorry, than that of Earth's. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: 92 times yeah, 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 is a yeah, lot yeah, yeah. more than 92%. Yeah, uh, it accurate. is, definitely. Um, yeah. I'm very um,
2: tired. <laughs> I can't.
1: It's been a time for sure. It has but been. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because we, we we're all we're all kind of used to dealing with the the media, and so you know when we see Ooh. headlines like this, anyone who works yeah. with science a lot is is, is it, you can cut through the 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 ball pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know a lot of the, the, what what annoys me a little bit about this is that when the media does this kind of hype, unfortunately, the knock on effect is once the real story gets around it always kind of shakes the public confidence in science itself, because what they see is that scientists have gone back on what they've said. When that's not true at all, what has happened is the media reported something scientists were never fully claiming. And then we've had to go back and sort of, you know, give people the the proper story. And it makes it sound Damage like... Control. Right, Mm. damage control. It it makes it sound like that scientists are always changing their mind all the time. And it's like, well, that's not really what's happening. What we're saying is we have this evidence that's suggestive of something, but we're not making declarations about anything. And the paper itself is really good. They go go to a lot of effort to go through all of these possibilities and saying in in the best kind of science language that this is the most likely explanation that we Mm. know of. Mm Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean there isn't an explanation that we don't know
2: of. Exactly. Yeah, they do a really, really good job of, of explaining all of that in the paper. Um, but that doesn't make for good news, right? Like not. it doesn't make for, um, for newsworthy headlines or grabbing headlines in an age where people are buying newspapers a lot less and subscribing to newspapers a lot less. You know, it's that kind of like weird sort of tension between timeliness newsworthiness um interest and um reality i guess like yeah i feel like as well like a lot of these sort of stories they have that news grabbing headline that attention grabbing headline and then they go into more detail in the pa- in the the actual copy like further down in the story but the thing is the damage is done already right with that news grabbing headline with that attention grabbing headline people are kind of looking at the headline reading the the leader and just being like oh well, that's what's happened, you know. And then they actually listen to scientists talking about it or listen to people talking about it even more and then get disappointed because there's no life on Mars. Or we don't know if there's life on Mars. It's not, not Mars, Venus. Uh, did both. I mention I'm tired? Both. both, yeah. Um, but yeah. it happened with water as well, like a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, water was apparently discovered on Mars, but there were so many caveats in that paper that just weren't talked about in the newspaper articles because it doesn't make for a good story.
0: Yeah, you know? because no one wants to hear about incredibly yeah. salty, incredibly acidic water. That...
2: Exactly. It's like, you know, scientists kind of think they might have found water, but it's not great water and it won't support life so cool. <laughs> you know, like no one's going to want to read about that in the general public. So it's, yeah, I can see why they do it, but it's not helpful.
0: It's like any study that's like, oh, we found this thing that cures cancer mm. dot, dot, dot in mice. Yeah. Right. Or even,
1: <laughs> yeah. or even worse. Dot. 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 Yeah. In in a petri dish, which yeah, in culture, yeah. spoiler alert: pretty much anything will kill.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> living I tissue
1: think, in a petri dish.
2: I think that you know, <laughs> a good thing that comes out of these sorts of these sorts of things happening though is that people kind of get hooked into reading more, and people get hooked into science. I'm not saying that it's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's a good thing to do, but it does have interesting effects yes on the general so public
0: i would say that it's a good example of science enthusiasm run amok mm-hmm. where people are like oh my god there could be life on venus and that like that's the headline which yeah. isn't great from a an accuracy point of view i want to i'm, I'm going to flip it for a second and say that all of this excitement all of this public awareness from potentially yeah. slightly misleading story headlines uh-huh. all, has shifted attention to hey we should maybe check on Venus a bit more because we've yeah. kind of ignored Absolutely, out. Venus yeah. is closer than Mars. Venus is easier yeah. to get to than Mars. Exactly. And
2: it's just a hellscape of horror, fire, and acid. Well,
0: 50 to 60 kilometers above the surface is. Which is
2: where they found the phosphine as well.
0: Is also uh, one atmosphere pressure. So, like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, Earth level pressure. Yeah. Um, between 50 to 60 kilometers is between 65 to negative 20 degrees celsius so within the habitable area like it's going to be hot or very cold Mm. and it's going to be acidic but Mm. they're not conditions that like a firefighter gear wouldn't protect you like you could walk outside in a cloud city with firefighter gear and not need to have a spacesuit. you just need exactly. to have like o- yeah. oxygen you have to oxygen. carry with you
1: yeah
2: yeah because there isn't going to be enough pressure to allow you to breathe well should we get into
1: the science of it then because I'm I'm kind of yeah. curious I mean I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit Joe, being the yeah. person who knows about chemistry so,
2: like,
1: <laughs> do you do, what do you know what phosphine like what is do you know what phosphine is and and yeah. some of its properties
2: look I know a little bit about it um I I'm coming at this from a perspective of an inorganic and analytical chemist. So um, my organic chemistry is a little bit rusty, um, but I have done a little bit of reading and I do have the tools to, you know, to kind of jog my memory a little bit. So that's helpful. Um, But phosphine is a gas. So it's kind of like, have you guys know ammonia? Yeah. So ammonia is NH3. So it's one nitrogen and then it's three hydrogens. Um, Mm -hmm. Phosphine, phosph phosphorus in its elemental form if you have a look at a periodic table is directly underneath nitrogen so that means that it's Mm. got the same number of um electrons to kind of bind to different things um and so it forms a molecule that looks pretty much like um nitrogen uh, ammonia so it's ph3 um and it's it's kind of got these two um Electron, uh, un- uh, electron pairs on top, which push all of the hydrogens down into like this sort of crab shape almost. <laughs> it's like a claw. Um, it smells like garlic apparently, um, ah. like very strongly of garlic, and it's highly poisonous, it's super toxic. Um, the reason people are super excited about it though is that um, naturally occurring phosphorus in our, on Earth um, generally likes to exist as phosphate, which is a type mm. of iron. Um, and the reason it likes to do that is because energetically it takes a lot less to be oxidized. Um, so phosphate is PO, PO32 minus? No, PO43 minus. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it exists in a way that it's very, very happy. So it takes less energy to make phosphate. Um, so phosphine does exist in earth's atmosphere. Uh, there are a lot of kind of, I was doing some reading before this, (laughs) um, there are a lot of theories about how it it's formed, um, in the atmosphere. So, uh, things like lightning strikes, they reckon it might actually Mm. form phosphine. Um, and I think that was one of the things that they tried and, um, tried to look at with the Venus phosphine as well. I can't remember exactly what happened with that, but that is something that they covered, um, and usually in the lab, you have to react it with a metal catalyst, I think, and, and do all sorts of weird things because it energetically it, it's not, um, super viable. Like it takes a lot of energy to get phosphine to form because it is in a, every, the phosphorus is in a reduced form. But the reason people are so excited about it at the moment, um, is that there are a whole bunch of anaerobic bacteria. So anaerobic means without oxygen. They don't use oxygen, um, but they have this process where they, um, using enzymes, they break um, phosphate and kind of things like DNA. You can find phosphate, uh, phosphorus, and a lot of different things like that, like DNA, um, and amino acids and things like that. Um, some amino acid side chains and stuff. Uh, and they
1: production right, like ATP yeah, is, yes. a, is a phosphate, yep. uh, and it's Absolutely. extremely important to mm-hmm. literally anything that requires energy.
2: Powerhouse of of the cell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So these microbes have um, evolved a way and figured out a way to break it down using enzymes to create phosphine Um, and that is why people are excited about it. Um, It doesn't naturally occur in rocky planets without the presence of some kind of bacteria to break it down because energetically it just doesn't make sense for it to be there. So that's why people are excited.
1: Right. And the interesting thing is here with Venus is that it's not, there's the sort of two things. It's the consistency with which they find it, meaning it's Mm -hmm. there all the time. Yeah. The amount that they have found it. Yes. And that's important, right? Because phosphine has a half-life of hours, I believe.
2: Yeah. It doesn't exist for very long at all.
1: Which means that something has to be producing it continuously. So something like, say, a lightning strike could yeah. produce phosphine, but only yeah. for really a short amount of time, and
2: not for very long. Not in that kind of in the sort of volume that they're finding in the atmosphere. Like they're yeah. finding it in the atmosphere in, con- in concentrations that will actually show up on a spectrophotometer. Like as an analytical chem, analytical chemist, that's you have to have a, a fair amount there to be able to read it from a, a distance that we are. I, I believe <laughs> <Right>. so. Like. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so really we need to get there to see what's making it because all evidence is pointing, you know, and the, um, authors of the paper are very much like, Hey, if anybody's got any ideas, we are, we're open to them. Um, you know, we need to, we've got a really good reason to go now and kind of say, see if there's any like bacteria or tiny microorganisms that are making this phosphine, because there's no logical reason as to why it would exist otherwise.
1: And I think that's what I like about this paper is that what they did mm-hmm. is they 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 tried to look at every possibility essentially. Yeah. How could the yeah, phosphine it's be here? Really well, thorough. Yeah. And they've yeah. essentially they've done what any good scientist should do, and they've ruled out all of the mm-hmm. things that are likely. Because the, the fact is, there being life on Venus is like a very low um oh,
2: you, so so uh, low probability, right? Yeah, nobody
1: like would if, you, at it. if you use like um like it's called like a bayesian hypothesis generator or like you know bayesian analysis essentially your likelihood of accepting something is like how likely it was before you did the study to be true based on what you already Mm. know and obviously life is very low on that scale Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons because venus is a hellscape um it actually makes me laugh that doom is on mars when like it makes so much more sense for Doom yeah. to be on Venus. But
2: yeah.
1: Anyway, um, but basically, <sighs> but the so the cool thing is is that they, they looked really thoroughly at all of this. And so far as we know, based on what we know about Venus, which, as we've alluded to, isn't actually that much, but based on what we know about Venus and what we know about these processes, none of the things that we know about now explain this evidence as exactly. well as the presence of microbes.
2: Yeah, and precisely.
1: You would think that microbes would have a real tough time living on venus but the interesting thing is is that that probably actually isn't necessarily true so Mm -hmm. i actually want to wind back time now uh a few billion years and i want you to compare earth and venus at this point in time because they are remarkably similar yeah and at this time on earth life was starting to form in 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 this embodiment in in terms of microbes these little single-celled organisms that are literally just dna protein and a a bit of fat all in this little ball doing its thing and so it's not actually too far-fetched that venus may have had sim because obviously venus and earth are made from basically the same material Mm -hmm. given that they coalesced in a very similar place in that planetary disc and had Mm -hmm. a lot of the same materials available to them that means that the, the conditions for life to have arisen on venus were as equal basically as earth at the time yeah it's it's possible that what happened is that microbial life has just managed to survive on venus somehow and adapt to this evolution of its Mm -hmm. um of its changing climate change induced horoscape um Mm -hmm. and that that over time they they had to use resources that were available to them we know that a lot of bacteria can um, appropriate sulfur, for instance, on Earth, yeah. when needed, something very abundant on Venus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that there are microbes that can live in incredible mm. pressures and temperatures here on Earth.
2: Extremophiles. Yes. Right.
1: You know, they crazy places local. like uh, underwater volcanic volcanic yeah. vents you inside actual volcanoes.
2: Pit? Yeah, you know the acid pits in Yellowstone Park. Those really kind of yeah. crazy, like mo- uh, rainbow ones that you see in photos. Yeah. yeah. there are bacteria living in that. Fun fact.
1: The enzyme that we use to do PCR was discovered in those pools. Really? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That is really very cool. cool.
2: And My voice just went very squeaky.
1: Yeah. Well, it's cool. Anyway. It's cool. It's, it's a cool little history of <laughs> science thing. And what we also know is that microbes live in this kind of weird cycle in the yeah. Earth's atmosphere. There are like microbes that live their entire life up there in the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. So the probability that life could have done this. Yeah. While not high, is there? It it is a real possibility, and given this evidence, it's certainly enough for us to go back and have Mm. a really good look and see if there are microbes Mm. there. And it would be incredibly exciting if they were. Definitely, Um, I've got to commend the researchers, as you say in this paper, for um, for sort of. Using the right amount of scientific caution, and of course, it was it was published in a Nature journal. You, you kind of have to yeah. couch your language that way to, yeah. to publish in Nature. But this reminds me very much of uh, Do you remember uh, quite a few years ago? Now there was that paper that claimed that um I think it was neutrinos or something. They they'd measured them traveling faster than the speed of light, apparently. Yeah, and essentially yeah. they came out and said, "Look, we can't explain this, but obviously." Everything we know about physics says that this can't be true. Yeah. Please come and help. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, people do. Much. Yeah. And that's that's the difference between science and pseudoscience, right? Like mm-hmm. in science you're always entertaining the idea that you're wrong.
2: Yeah, totally.
1: You're starting with the evidence and then trying to draw a conclusion. Yeah. With so pseudoscience, I
2: why, yeah. I think that's why a lot of people in, yeah. you know, outside of, outside of science have so much trouble kind of with that sort of language. It's like, well, yes. either you're right or you're wrong, right? And yeah. it's like, well, no, actually scientists are always trying to figure out why these things are happening mm-hmm. and why we're seeing these things. We right. come up with ideas for why that might be and then we put it out to the the world and then other scientists come along and say, hey, actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe exactly. it was this. And, yeah, like, that's, that's not great. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel mm. good when somebody does that, but no. it does... You know, it does make our science better and it makes it more robust.
1: Like scientists, they sort of, when we're doing science, we actually deal in degrees of rightness and degrees of wrongness. Yeah. Never one or the other. It's sort of like we're we're, we're like probably, we we deal in we're probably correct. Yeah. Almost certainly correct.
2: Yeah. Yeah. See, Probably I'm wrong. Like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I work with kids predominantly in my full-time job um and i explain it to them when we're talking about nature of science i kind of think about like gravity right so i hold up a tennis ball i drop the te- um and then i i pose a question to the kids and i'm like hey what's gonna happen if i drop this ball and most of the time they're like oh yeah it's gonna fall it's going to make a sound when it hits the ground. And I'm like, how do you know that? And they're like, well, it's based on experience, right? And then I kind of go, yeah, but how do you know for sure that the next time I drop it, it's not going to float up into the atmosphere? And they're all kind of like, "Ah, oh, hmm. yeah. But the more you do stuff like that, the more certain you are. But you can never be like 100% certain that the next time you try it, it's not going to do something different, right? Yes. That's kind of yeah. where I think a lot of people get confused about you know, what a theory is and what a um what scientists mean when they say we're cer- we're mostly certain or we're a, a certain degree mm. kind of sure that this happens, there's always that couching because you can never be sure, you know? Although yeah, yeah. Like hundred-
0: when it comes to, to physics, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of like the certainties with physics. Yeah. Uh, like we've we've ran this this simulation yeah more times than the yeah. sun has risen <laughs> on all of humanity. Yeah basically <laughs> so we're yeah. more of this than the sun <laughs> rising tomorrow yeah like
2: yeah like there are definite exceptions to that rule but like in terms of you know explaining it to a bunch of um yes. eight-year-olds that tends yeah. to sink in it's pretty I mean, like interesting that's, interesting that's
0: why like they were talking about um jupiter having phosphine yeah because like jupiter's hot interior it's really mm-hmm. uh high levels of pressure it can form phosphine as well yeah but venus lacks the high temperature and pressure exactly well, those, those yeah, they it. yeah yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. because so they've like, found it in that ga- in that cloud layer as well so like there's not that kind of pressure there yeah
0: yeah exactly so like yeah. it, it can form in other ways besides microbes so if mm-hmm. if it's forming on venus and it's not not microbes then there is some exotic chemistry happening that we don't know exactly. about
2: which would be interesting in itself to go and find out. Yes.
0: Definitely. Yeah. So I
2: we think should definitely.
0: We should also move into the next question. Okay. Mm. Uh, this is from an anonymous Yahoo Answers user who I am going to call Bill. Yes. Bill asks, why can't I look into the sun? Oh, Bill. <laughs> Ever since I was younger, my parents told me not to look directly into the sun. I'm older now and I still don't know Why?
1: Why? Uh, so, do you know what I, I, I've I just now thought of the, the perfect uh, an, uh, analogy for why I think um, mm-hmm. Bill can I call you Bill I'm, I'm going to call you Bill um, have you ever held a magnifying glass at just the right distance from the ground <laughs> and had a very focused scorching beam of light hit the tarmac and melt the, the bitumen because that is what's happening to your eyeballs <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. when you look at the sun. Your yeah. eyes have a very, very focused lens that uh, is necessary for all of us to be able to basically see things in clarity. As humans, we actually have amazing clarity of vision. Like It's crazy how, uh, how much acuity we have to, to you know, resolve two, part, two things that are close together as separate objects. And in order to do that, you have to take the light and put it on a very specific part of our eyeball. And that part of our eyeball is called the the retina. Mm. And when you're looking at the sun, what you're doing is you're creating a very intense, hot uh, piece of real estate right onto the part of your eyeball that's the most important. And you will literally cook it if you Mm. stare at the sun for too long.
2: Yes. Basically, Bill, do you want to cook your face? (laughs) Because <laughs> that's how you cook your face. Uh, and if that, if that really doesn't sit cool.
0: with you, Bill, uh, yes. I have an alternative. Um, Bill, actually, I'll be, I'll be a bit more formal. I'll call you Billium. So Will- Billium, <laughs> you don't like it if people stare at you, right? The sun doesn't like it either. If you stare at the sun, the sun gets mad,
1: and we don't want <laughs> the sun to be mad. Don't the stare at the sun.
2: Mm, you are ruin it for all of us.
1: Mm. Yeah. There is a weird cult that actually believes in staring at the sun. Really? Um, yeah. Um, they, they believe that they can gain nutrients that way uh, and don't have to eat, which is strange. And there was an unfortunate incident um, around 100 years ago where uh, a group of people thought they were witnessing a miracle. And a, a very large group of people in Portugal, I believe, uh, all stared at the sun. And unfortunately, uh, many of them did go blind. Uh, yeah. Please don't stare at the sun. Um, Just don't-, yeah, don't. Don't do it.
2: Don't it, cook it, your face. It might,
1: it might seem pleasant mm. when its rays are scattered diffusely across your skin, mm. but if you concentrate those rays into a very tight area, uh,
2: you, you will get... cook your face, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you know what? You another could another nice look up at is... the
1: sun with your eyes closed and just get that like warm sun glow, but don't do yeah. it too long and don't have your eyes open,
2: yeah. Just don't, I mean.
1: I mean, another example these days, which is cool, is that um, we're using mirrors to reflect the sunlight into a very specific, like, Sauron tower, for want of a better word. Oh, yeah. um, To create energy. Uh, So that that just tells you how much energy is in the sun. It's a lot. Yeah. Let's go to our next story.
0: Uh, Another space-themed one. Yes. Neutron star collisions do not create the quantity of chemical elements previously assumed. Mm. Ooh. Researchers have revealed that current models can't explain the amount of gold in the universe, which has created an astronomical mystery. All the hydrogen in the universe, including every molecule of it on Earth, was created by the Big Bang, which also produced a lot of helium and lithium, but not much else. The rest of the naturally occurring elements are made by different nuclear processes happening inside stars, Mass governs exactly which elements are forged, but they are all released into the galaxy in each star's final moments, explosively in the cases of really big ones, or as densely outflows similar to solar wind, for ones in the same class as our sun. We can think of stars as giant pressure cookers where new elements are created, explained co-author, associate professor Caracas from from Australia's Australian Research Centre of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics in Three Dimensions, Astro 3D. The reactions that make these elements also provide the energy that keeps stars shining bright for billions of years. As stars age, they produce heavier and heavier elements as their insides heat up. Half of all the elements that are heavier than iron, such as thorium and uranium, were thought to be made when neutron stars, the super-dense remains of burnt-out suns, crashed into one another. Long theorized, neutron star collisions were not confirmed until 2017. Now, however, fresh analysis by Caracas and fellow astronomer Chaikei Kobayashi and Maria Lugaro Reveal that the role of neutron stars may have been considerably overestimated, and that other stellar processes altogether is are responsible for making most of the heavy heavy elements. Neutron star mergers did not produce enough heavy elements in the early life of the universe, and they and they still don't now. Fourteen billion later, fourteen billion years later, said Caracas. The universe didn't make them fast enough to account for their presence in very ancient stars and, overall, there are simply not enough collisions going on to account for the abundance of these elements around today. Instead, the researchers found that heavy elements needed to be created by an entirely different sort of stellar phenomenon, unusual supernovae that collapse while spinning very fast and generating strong magnetic fields. The finding is one of several to emerge from their research which was just published in the Astrophysical Journal. Their study is the first time that the stellar origins of all naturally occurring elements from carbon to uranium have been calculated from first principles. The new modeling, the researchers say, will substantially change the presently accepted model of how the universe evolved. The researchers concede that future research might find that neutron star collisions are more frequent than the evidence so far suggests, in which case their contribution to the elements that make up everything from mobile phone screens to the fuel for nuclear reactors might be revised upwards once again. For the moment, however, they appear to deliver much less buck for their bang.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
1: That's really cool. Like, I, it's, it's not very often that something completely upends our entire understanding of the universe i mean not entire i'm being a little hyperbolic but it's a big deal right it's a big deal because we Mm. we've assumed this um for a long time i'm I'm gonna name drop a book here because i i everything i know about astronomy comes from this one book basically called um death from the skies these are the ways the world will end and it's by um astronomy popularizer phil plate who is a great author and Bad just Australia. an amazing human being um I've, yeah. I've i've been lucky enough to meet him a couple of times and he loves science communication absolutely loves it um he actually owns a piece of meteorite that he just handed around the auditorium uh, last time i saw him uh, really cool but that book um despite its title is actually sneakily a book about astronomy <laughs> so even though it's about things that could destroy the earth it's actually about things like degenerate neutron stars and and the way the elements are made and I, I recommend people Read that book if they want to learn more and Obviously uh, that book was released in 2008 and so since then now we have this Um, so maybe he'll have to revise his book Um, and so it seems like they have some alternative alternate explanations for how these elements Did become in the abundance that we now know but they don't have a full explanation. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so they they have a theory, but it's it, it's a theory that doesn't necessarily explain all of it, and it hasn't been proven. Mm. So, mm. Um, you know, we have a we have missing heavy elements, things heavier than iron, so things like gold, uranium, and things. Where not so much of that, that they're missing, we have them. We just don't know where they came from. Yeah, right. So they're producing. Up, yeah. up
2: yeah. until iron makes sense, right? Like we can figure out where they all came from because iron is super stable yeah so Everything it makes wants sense to be iron. yeah basically
1: so if i'm if i'm correct even our own sun can create iron or am i
2: it will eventually in, in, it, in its think. fusion yes. i believe it will, it, it will yeah.
1: eventually
0: in its last at
2: you know, the moment it's years. mostly hydrogen and helium it's mostly helium i think mm. but the process of diffusion is what makes it shine yes yeah
1: so i guess for people who aren't massively into this like the what what we're trying to say is that most elements heavier than iron actually Mm -hmm. require incredible uh energy and pressure to be created because the only way for these molecules to exist is to be fused from two smaller molecules Mm -hmm. and the heavier those molecules get the more energy uh and essentially pressure but We'll use the word density because that's the correct term, um, are required. And normally the things that create this energy and density are things like supernova. So when stars explode, these yeah. things are together so intensely and with so much energy that they two iron molecules can fuse together to become Yeah. Or, or an, an element and a couple of helium
0: or an iron and a couple hydrogen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right, yeah. exactly. Because but, it just takes a couple more to get to the next
1: element and a couple more to get to the next Yeah. And basically, absolutely huge stars can become like they have. They essentially have so much pure mass that they collapse onto themselves to the point where they actually occupy a space smaller than a teacup. Yeah. So imagine, imagine a star thousands of times larger than our sun, and all of its bits existing inside a teacup. Uh, you can imagine the amount of pressure and energy contained within that teacup and mm-hmm. so of course if they're too big they form black holes like the energy coat goes the other way whoosh, just mm-hmm. sucks things into it yeah. but if they don't do that then they produce these sort of exotic elements well not just and... not just
0: existing as as
1: neutron stars but colliding
0: neutron stars getting the the, the really heavy elements like uranium
2: yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. So those kinds of those things naturally peons,
2: occur. Yeah. So they have to. You're like you were saying before, Ross. They have to come from somewhere. Yes. Yeah. And this is another example of like science being science, right? Like yeah. somebody mm. came up with a, a, the best explanation that we could figure out, and that was widely accepted as you know, oh yeah, that mm-hmm. that seems logical and that seems you know that seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. And then we confirmed it because we found you know neutron stars colliding, and we were like, oh, cool, sweet, we've seen it happen. That's great. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. makes sense um that explains
0: the where the missing elements come from great
2: exactly yeah um or that seems to fit with that explanation and then Mm. you know other scientists come across come along and go hang on but that doesn't make sense mathematically because you'd have to have this amount of neutron stars colliding and we just don't have any evidence for that
0: yes um yes and so like that's one of the things i like is that they can see that like future research Mm -hmm. may find that neutron star collisions are more frequent yep and, yeah. And so, like, oh, well, if they're more frequent, then that will explain, the, like, the missing...
2: Exactly, yeah. That'll totally well, explain where it's coming I from. I guess yeah.
1: there could be some process that happened that actually the universe isn't old enough for us to have seen it yet because the light mm-hmm. hasn't reached us for yeah. us to gain that evidence, maybe.
2: No, that's um, right.
1: Because the early universe was weird, yo.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, very yeah. strange. I could
0: talk about that for a long time, I think.
1: <laughs> uh, but I think...
0: Uh, this conversation about some weird math will lead us to our next question. Yes. Amazing!
2: <laughs> this that. is
0: by Yahoo Answers user anonymous, who I'm going to call Ted. Excellent. Ted, I see says, what you did. Thank you. Could <laughs> I win the lottery by calculating the odds? I'm going to say yes, assuming you have a lot of resources. I would say if I would say if you calculated the odds of winning the lottery, you would have an equal amount as before you had calculated the odds.
2: Yeah. Uh, I I see what you're
1: saying, yes. Knowing the odds doesn't actually
2: No. Like once you know the odds, what can you do about it? And, uh, spoiler alert,
0: we already know the odds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least for lotteries in Australia, the odds are publicly known.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I feel like it's not going to help unless you know what to do about it.
1: And also, I believe there are so many combinations that it would be extremely rare for you to be able to buy a ticket for every single combination and then win money.
2: I feel like you'd probably have to spend more on buying lottery tickets than you would actually winning the lottery Hmm. in order to break even here.
1: Unless you're running some kind of scam. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and there are some lotteries in the world that that reach, uh, like, the triple the triple figures in the millions right um some of the mm-hmm. european lotteries reach uh up to 300 million australian dollars sometimes um yeah. and uh, i think at that point probably if you had the resources an to buy the
2: amount of money right
1: it is it is a lot like... i mean but then again you know jeff bezos has made more money since the pandemic started than uh, the entire world oh, ever no. has made essentially at this point so you know
2: um it's a relative yeah
1: yeah but um Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, yeah. I mean, I I guess you would need to not really know the odds but predict the future essentially at that point to gain any sort of advantage over the system.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Did you
0: know there was actually, um, there was someone who worked out how to beat the lottery in certain US states. Interesting. So there were certain things that had to happen for this to work. One of them was that, uh, if nobody won the highest scale, then that same amount of that maximum prize money would be then be split down to the next prize level. Hmm. And so basically every every prize level would be getting paid. And if nobody won the highest, that would increase the payment for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, so no rollovers in this case, right? Exactly. So rather than like getting all six numbers or all seven numbers, if you just got say it was all six numbers. If you got five, you still got a payment. And if you got four, you also got a payment. And Mm -hmm. in these particular states, if you got three, you also got a payment. And what this person did was they worked out the mathematics behind how much money they would have to invest to increase the amount of money they were putting in. So they would buy a number of tickets, calculating the odds. Like They they had to put in like $40,000.
2: Mm -hmm. right yeah i was gonna say buying $40,000
0: worth of tickets would result in an income back of like $50,000 so it's not a lot of money but but it's it's some it's some and like maybe you'd get a higher payout and you'd actually end up with more money but statistically averaging like he worked out the statistical averages and averaging by putting in this $40,000 he would get an additional 10,000 out just by doing the math for it and he was like, well, I'm just going to do this. And he did it until the state worked out what was happening and then stopped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could. And then he went, oh, well, hey, this neighboring state has the exact same lottery setup," up. <laughs> yeah. And he did this for about three or four different states before they just stopped awesome. doing it. And everything he did was completely legal. He just worked out the math and worked out the investment <laughs> yeah. he had
1: to put in. Right. That, I mean, he did four tickets, right, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's like how card counting is not strictly speaking illegal. It's just
2: heavily. Casinos.
1: Casinos own the property on which you are gambling, so they have the right to tell you to get chucked. Basically, (laughs) (laughs) the right to refuse service at any point.
0: Yeah. But I guess technically, if you calculated the odds, you could win the lottery, assuming certain conditions were already in place.
1: Yeah, defining win the lottery, right? I guess like, and in Australia, that certainly would not work because we do have rollovers.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah,
1: and
0: I mean, if you if you rig the lottery, like if you had access to the random number generators, you could produce seemingly random numbers that oh you happen to match up on, but then you're rigging. Like you aren't calculating the odds.
1: You are yeah, um, yeah.
2: you're very
0: very blatantly breaking the law.
1: And there is yeah. a reason that lotteries actually aren't based on random number generators, but actually entropy, i.e., a bingo machine. Yeah.
0: I used to remember the like the lotto numbers rolling around, and they those machines used to become like they became more and more exotic for how yes. to bring those balls out of the, the spinning
2: chamber. Yeah.
1: Yes, the spectacle right?
2: Yeah. It's like how big can we make this Rube Goldberg machine?
0: Exactly but, but yeah, I mean I guess if yeah if you could calculate the odds, potentially you could win. but this isn't like a, a quantum object where by observing it you have changed the results <laughs> right
2: <laughs> Yeah if a tree falls in a forest
0: yeah if a mathematician calculates the odds they have a higher chance probably not. no to quote I don't even know which lottery at this point um, got to be in it to win it.
2: It's if, true. Um, yeah. If Although you don't ask, the answer is always no. Statistically, and others... you will,
1: you will win more in your lifetime by not being in it.
0: Yes, statistically, if you if you save the money just than by having
1: it, a yeah. net winning of zero, you are probably winning more than you ever will on the lottery.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. It's like if you ever go into a casino and like set a limit for how much money you're going to spend, because effectively you're walking into a casino with money that you are spending on entertainment, not to win.
2: Yeah exactly. Yeah.
0: And if you happen to get a big win of the like if you walked into a casino
1: and the first thing
0: you did doubled your money walk out walk out like you <laughs>
1: Well this happened yeah. to me once my friend wanted to go to the casino after our final exam to like play the pokies which is an awful idea but mm. I was like eh I had a dollar in my pocket so I just bet the entire dollar uh, in one go and I won $26 I was like cool I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> that yep. was my yep. day done
0: <laughs> yeah well like, if you if you if you win that dollar back great everything else that's just my prize that's money paid. now i'm gonna yep. spend that one dollar again and again until it until it runs out yeah which might very well be the very next pull.
1: i mean statistically i should have lost the entire dollar
2: yes pretty quickly on yeah. the first one,
1: you know but i just for whatever reason you know Luck don't of the play draw. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't, don't do the pokies. Just don't. Really
2: don't bad. stare at the sun and don't play pokies. You heard it here first, guys.
0: Yeah, dishing out the the true life skills. Do don't look at the sun. Don't play the gambling games. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Well, uh that does bring us to the end of the show. It's been a very space themed episode. Um Ross, mm. where can people find you on social media?
1: You can hit me up uh, at Russ Bolch on Twitter, which is a little more active now that I have things to promote. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also the same on Facebook. I have a I have a page on Facebook which also has my name, Russ Bolch. Uh, but you can also find me as the voice of Harold on Dungeons and Doctorates. Woohoo! An actual play D D fifth edition podcast. Joe, where can people find you on social
0: media?
2: Well, if they look at D and doctorates um, on Twitter, they'll find me as the voice of Meredith. Um, fun fact, uh, but you can also find my my personal socials um, as uh, at Joe Matrix J O H M A T R I X on Instagram and on Twitter, um, and I post a lot about stuff that we do at work and weird planetarium things that we're um, we're creating and yeah, all sorts of fun things. It's a great time.
0: And you can find me at Ben Kinnan, B E N K E I R N A N on Twitter, uh, and as the voice of, apart from Potentia, literally everyone else on <laughs> Dn Doctorates. <laughs> yeah, the actual the play DnD podcast that we play together, uh, combining science, academia, and fantasy into a fun, fun time episodes releasing fortnightly
1: uh and there are seven episodes well soon to be seven episodes uh yeah. plus bonus stuff so yeah check it out it's uh people have been really enjoying it so far we've had great feedback and uh we'd love to have you along
2: as well Definitely do it do it do it do it
1: and you can find the
0: non-peer-reviewed podcast at non-peer-reviewed on facebook and twitter as always, this is a non-peer-reviewed podcast. I'm a non-peer-reviewed person. Do not quote me professionally. Thank you so much. We will see you next time. Bye. See ya.
2: Bye.